Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Thrilling Adventures of Superman. My name is Michael Bradley, as always, your host on this journey through the golden age of Superman. I want to thank you very much for coming back, or for giving the show a try if this happens to be your first episode. This is episode 10 of the show, and it's a very special episode because it marks the beginning of a brand new era in the show. This episode, we start our look at the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. I am really psyched to be getting into these. It will uh, make things a little more interesting, I think, since the subject of each episode will vary a little more from show to show. But more than that, the newspaper strips are just chock full of fun and action-packed stories. Um, The first one here is just good drama, and it's a major step forward in the mythology, too. And as we'll see as we cover more of them down the road, there is a huge historical significance to these strips. This episode is also the debut of a brand new segment on the show. In previous episodes, after I go through the issue, I have been running down other comics that were on the stands around the time of, you know, whatever issue I was looking at. And I'm going to continue to do that in the comics episodes. But since that type of thing really can't be done with the newspaper strips, those episodes will contain Spotlight, a new segment where I will take a look at one of the many people that have contributed to the Superman legend over the years, and give some biographical information about their life and career, and and the lowdown on what they contributed to the character. Uh, It seemed like a good way to dig a little more into the people that have contributed just so much to the character over the years, many of which have remained unsung, at least at the time that they were working. And that's something that I've really wanted to do since I started the show. This episode, being the first installment, it seemed only fitting to kick things off with one of the men that started it all. So, later in the episode, we will have the first of a two-part spotlight on Superman's original writer and co-creator, Jerry Siegel. But before we get into that and the rest of the show, I have a new iTunes review. This one is from S.M. Purr, and he writes... Well, I say he. I'm, I guess I'm not really sure if S.M. Purr is a male or not, and I hate to make presumptions, so sorry. But anyway... S.M. Purr wrote, Heard about you through John Wilson. Great podcast. Love hearing about the old comics, even though some stories are way out there. Keep them coming. And thank you very much. I I really am glad that you like the show, and (laughs) yes, some stories are pretty out there. And we haven't even gotten to the really weird ones yet, so just hang on. And I want to thank John again for plugging the show. It seems uh, seems he's doing more to promote the show than I am, so thanks, John. One more quick item of business, and that's an announcement, or at least something that you know I think you might be interested in. A little while back, uh, my friend Charlie Niemeyer invited me to come on and be a guest on his show, Superman in the Bronze Age, which is a great show that covers Superman's Bronze Age adventures. So a couple weeks ago, we sat down and recorded an episode and looked at the Superman books cover dated October 1971, which included Superman number 243 and Action Comics number 405. I want to thank Charlie again for having me on. I had a whole lot of fun chatting about Superman and hope we'll be able to get our schedules to work out so that I can go back sometime. Uh, You can find his show at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com and that would be episode 14. I highly encourage you to give that a listen, Uh, not just because I'm on it, but because Charlie puts together a great podcast that looks at an era of books that have largely been ignored in reprints, so 
Please give his show a listen. Once more, that address is Superman in the Bronze Age, all one word, dot blogspot.com. And thanks again to Charlie for having me on his show. Alright, so, the Superman Daily Newspaper Strips. For a bit of background, when Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were originally developing the concept that would become Superman, they had their sights set on Superman as a newspaper strip. It may seem odd in this day, but back in the 30s and 40s, a newspaper strip was a huge accomplishment. Batman co-creator Bob Kane has been quoted as saying that when the Batman newspaper strip started, he felt that he'd finally hit the big time, even though the comic had been running for more than four years and was pretty successful on its own. Comic books at the time were mostly throwaway material. Even working on them wasn't always seen as an esteemed job, which is one reason why creators sometimes worked under anonymous pseudonyms. Comics may have sold millions of copies, but newspapers were read by ten times as many people in one day, long before internet and television were vital parts of people's lives. So we can only imagine the sense of accomplishment Siegel and Schuster felt when the strip came about in 1939. After years of rejection from countless publishers and syndicates, their character was not only a huge success in the comics, but was finally right where they had envisioned him being all along, the pages of a newspaper. And, no less, being distributed by one of the groups that had rejected the character to begin with, McClure Syndicate. McClure likely landed the strip because of a previously established connection with DC. Back in 1937, the Superman proposal from Siegel and Schuster was on the slush pile of the syndicate, when it was discovered by Sheldon Mayer, who was working as an assistant for M.C. Gaines, then an executive with McClure. Mayer tried to convince Gaines to use the strip, but was unsuccessful. Gaines did, however, pass it on to Vin Sullivan and Harry Donenfeld, who went on to use it in Action Comics. This relationship between not only McClure and DC, but also Mayer, Gaines, Sullivan, and Donenfeld, is possibly also the reason that DC was allowed to handle the work on the Superman strip. This resulted in many of the same people who worked on the comics also working on the strip, which otherwise likely would have been handled by a different group of creators. There's not really too much else by way of history on the newspaper strip. It has been said that the newspaper strip is the true beginning of Superman as a franchise because it caused the character to come to the attention of so many more people. With Superman's popularity picking up, a deal was worked with McClure to do the strip, and it was bang, zoom, straight to the moon, and Superman truly never looked back. The daily strip began on January 16, 1939, with the Sunday strip starting later that year on November 5th. It first appeared in the Houston Chronicle, and after that the Milwaukee Journal and the San Antonio Express. By the end of the first year of the strip, it was in over 60 papers nationwide, and by 1941, the daily and Sunday strips were appearing in more than 300 papers. And estimates say that at its peak, the strip had a circulation hovering around 20 million. But even though th there's not a lot of uh, background history on the strips, they are extremely historically important. A lot of major elements of the Superman mythology first appeared there. The Bizarro Superman debuted in the newspaper strip. The Bald Luthor, even though it was originally an artist's mistake, first showed up there. It's said that the first telephone booth change happened in the newspaper strip. The rather famous scene of him failing the eye test and thus not being able to join the army during World War II comes from the newspaper strip. 
And there's a lot of work by significant Superman creators, including Wayne Boring, who had a long run on the strip, Kurt Swan, Alvin Schwartz, Bill Finger, and not to mention Siegel and Schuster. But even given all that history, it still is one of the most overlooked and ignored things in Superman's history. Only the first few years have been reprinted, and the rest are simply not available. You can find them via microfish and other sources, but they're extremely hard to come by. And even when you do, they're often mislabeled or barely readable or, you know, incomplete. The Superman radio serial has been equally ignored in an official capacity, but that has a leg up on these in that the radio show is in public domain. And there are legions of old-time radio aficionados that have collected and cleaned up the episodes, and that has made them fairly easy to come by. But the newspaper strips, despite their significance, haven't been quite so fortunate, and I really hope that one day DC gets around to collecting them in their entirety. With the success of Fantagraphics Peanuts collections, uh, the Terry and the Pirates, Dick Tracy, and Little Orphan Annie collections from IDW, and not to mention the complete Farside and the complete Calvin and Hobbes books, you would think that they would get on the Superman collections. The archives and Chronicles and Showcase Presents lines have all been huge successes for DC, so there is clearly a desire for these stories if they would just get them into print. But anyway... Enough of my soapboxing. Fortunately for this show, the first few years are available in excellent reprints, so that will keep me busy for a while. Getting back to the creators of the strip, information on who did exactly what is even sketchier and harder to come by than with the comic stories. Uh, we know that Jerry Siegel wrote most of the strips until around 1942, and after this, Whitney Ellsworth and Jack Schiff also started writing with Alvin Schwartz coming on in the mid-40s and Bill Finger writing on the strip uh, starting sometime around 1959. And there were others probably pitching in on stories here and there as well. Artistically, it's hard to say who worked on any one particular strip, especially in these earlier years. Around this time is when the Schuster shop started firing, so in these early strips, it's safe to say that they were by Joe Schuster and the Joe Schuster shop. The folks that worked on them included Paul Cassidy, Leo Nowak, Dennis Neville, John Sakela, Ed Dabrotka, Paul Loretta, and Jack Burnley. Later artists included Wayne Boring, Wynn Mortimer, Kurt Swan, and Stan Kay. If you are familiar with Superman, a lot of those names are probably familiar, because we'll be seeing a lot of those names in the pages of the comics, you know, as we talk about those over the course of the show. But much like with the comics, the, uh, the, the newspaper strip wasn't credited to individual artists, so it can be difficult to discern who did what, especially considering there might be several different artists working on one story or even one strip. Most of the documentation on who worked on any one strip or story, if such a thing ever even existed, has probably been long lost to history, unfortunately. Like other ongoing adventure strips at the time, the Superman Daily newspaper strips told stories over periods of several days and weeks, uh, with stories ranging from as few as 12 strips all the way up to more than 100 for some of the later stories. For the synopses, I'm just going to run down the story as a whole, rather than breaking down each strip, because <laughs> that would be kind of tedious. These stories, as far as I know, weren't given overall titles at the time. Many of the individual strips have a title that ran above it for that installment, 
but in most cases it's only descriptive of you know that particular strip and not the story as a whole. Rather than read those off in the show, I'm just going to post that list in the show notes at greatcrypton.com. Though this initial storyline is short, reading the entire list of the inner titles when we get to the longer stories would be very time-consuming and probably quite boring. Um, plus, in reprint volumes that have come out, which I will talk a little more about those later in the episode, each episode has been titled. So I'll just give that, and if you're further interested, you can check the show notes. The opening storyline from the dailies is Superman Comes to Earth. It ran from January 16th to January 28th, 1939. And though it was only 12 strips long, making it one of the shortest storylines from the dailies, as we're going to see, it might be the most important Superman story that we've seen so far since Action Comics number 1. The first strip opens on a distant planet, a planet whose population has highly evolved to the peak of perfection, a race of Superman. The planet's name? Krypton. We find a man by the name of Jor-El, that's J-O-R hyphen L, Krypton's top scientist, racing on foot through the streets, then leaping into his home via a balcony high overhead. Entering his home, he rushes inside to meet his wife, Laura, who has just given birth to their son, Kal-El. Jor-El inquires about the health of the child, and Laura tells him that he's a bouncing baby boy, full of strength and energy, so much so that he even gave the doctor a black eye. Jor-El and Laura share a moment, but it is interrupted by a violent tremor which shakes the home, causing it to collapse. Jor-El climbs from the rubble and frantically searches for his wife and newborn son who have been trapped. In a panel that echoes the cover to Action Comics number 1, Jor-El lifts a huge slab of the wreckage, freeing his family, and thankfully both Laura and the baby are unharmed. Apparently, and perhaps rather conveniently, Jor-El and Laura had a second home because they take off running for there. On the way, Laura asks Jor-El why there have been so many earthquakes lately. Jor-El replies that he isn't sure, but that he intends to find out. When they get to their second home, Jor-El secludes himself in a laboratory and begins poring over calculations and findings. Hours, then days pass as Jor-El feverishly studies his work. Not even Laura can tear him away. Finally, five days later, Jor-El comes to a sad, unbelievable conclusion. He tries to resist telling Laura, but she pressures him, and finally he shares with her the horrifying news. Krypton is doomed. It seems the recent earthquakes and volcanic eruptions are a result of a cataclysm deep within the planet Krypton. And Jor-El says there can be no doubt that soon Krypton will explode, killing everyone. Shortly, Jor-El and Laura watch over the sleeping Kal-El and lament the fate that awaits them, and how their young son's life will be tragically cut short, robbing him of the full life ahead of him. Laura gazes up at the night sky of Krypton, and remarks that the stars are so free and so far away, and if only they could be there, safe from the impending danger and able to live their lives. Suddenly, Jor-El lights on an idea. The stars will be their destination. Jor-El plans to build a ship, a large space ark, big enough to transport the entire population of the planet to another world. Laura says that building such a ship would take an army to complete, so Jor-El says that he will go to Retaz, chairman of the council, and ask for support from them. Later, Jor-El goes and pleads with the council, but they laugh off his claims. Retaz says the fears are unfounded and he should forget his silly idea that Krypton is dying. 
Jor-El returns home and tells Lord that the council doubted his sanity and laughed at him, and that because of their foolishness, the whole world will die. But Laura stands by her man and encourages Jor-El, telling him he must build the ship with or without the council's help. In the months that follow, Jor-El works intensely to overcome the many obstacles of interplanetary travel, finally completing a model ship to use for trial. He tells Laura that he plans to send the model to the planet Earth, which Jor-El has deduced is the only nearby planet capable of sustaining life. Should the test flight be successful, he will immediately begin construction on a full-size model. As Jor-El is about to pull the switch to launch the model ship on its test flight, he is thrown off balance by a tremendous shaking. Another earthquake has struck Krypton. A look outside and Jor-El and Laura see people fleeing in panic, buildings crumbling, the ground splitting in two, bursts of fire spitting up from the crevasses. It's worse than they had feared. This isn't just another quake, it's the final quake. Krypton is breathing her last. Jor-El and Laura rush back towards the ship, but Jor-El says it can only hold one of them. Laura insists that if only one can go, it must be the boy. The infant is placed into the test rocket and it launches from the laboratory roof. Just as the ship launches into space, another quake strikes and Krypton is torn apart, exploding into millions of pieces. The explosion rocks the ship, but it escapes without harm and continues its flight towards Earth with its precious cargo, the sole survivor of the once magnificent Krypton, the infant Kal-El. The tiny ship's journey to Earth is fraught with danger. It narrowly misses getting struck by a meteor and drawn into the gravity of a sun, but it finally does reach its destination. As the ship lands, friction from its travel through the atmosphere causes the ship to burst into flames. The flames creep closer and closer to the ship's sleeping passenger, but thankfully a passing motorist rescues the child and takes it to a local orphanage. The child astounds attendants at the orphanage with feats of strength. Years pass, and as the child, now named Clark Kent, reaches adulthood, he finds that he has fantastic abilities, including strength, speed, and a high degree of invulnerability. Clark decides to use his abilities to aid those in need, and so begins the career of the physical marvel Superman, Champion of the Oppressed. I just love this story so much. Not only is it clearly a historical moment for the character, being the most expansive origin we've gotten so far, and arguably the only origin since Action Comics number 1 breathes through it in just a few panels, but, man, there's just... It's just covered with emotion and drama. As modern readers, this is a story that we are all no doubt very familiar with. Almost every interpretation of Superman gets around to telling it eventually. You know, some, like Superman the Animated Series, spend a little more time on it than others, but eventually every one of them tells it to some degree. So, we have seen this story told and retold many times, but I dare say that few have reached the level of this one. Even after 75 years and more than a dozen distinct versions and hundreds of retellings, this one still holds up among the greatest. In just 12 strips, 48 panels in all, the equivalent of about 6 comic book pages, Siegel and Schuster convey drama, suspense, and urgency to get off the planet. The, the range of emotions in just these strips goes from happiness at celebrating Kal-El's birth, to dread at finding out the planet is dying, to optimism at the idea of leaving, to rejection from the council, to determination when Jor-El decides to build the ship on his own, to 
fear when the final quakes start, to loss coupled with hope as Jor-El and Laura die but baby Kal-El is saved and his ship is launched towards Earth, to worry and relief when the ship is, you know, when it lands and is rescued, and finally back to optimism and a swell of hope when Superman is finally revealed in the last panel. It runs the gamut of emotion, and it does so right from the beginning. I love how Siegel started the story with Joel racing through the streets of the city. No explanation until the final panel of the first strip when you find out he's running home to meet his wife, who has just given birth to their son. I don't have children, but I can imagine the exhilaration and the thrill at the prospect of getting to meet and hold your first child. So, we're drawn into the action and emotion right from panel one. It also serves to show right up front that the residents of Krypton are definitely different from those of Earth. It says that in the narration, but we're also visibly shown. And speaking of the visible, I really want to stress that Schuster's art in these strips is phenomenal. Schuster was often hit and miss. In past episodes, I've praised him for his ability to draw exaggerated comedic emotion, but expressed disappointment at what was often a lack of detail. But here, it seems, Schuster was just really firing on all cylinders. Laura is breathtakingly beautiful. She looks like a 30s movie star. If Maureen O'Sullivan or, you know, Myrna Loy walked off the screen and was transformed into a drawing, that's what she would look like. Jor-El, too, has these the rugged, square-jawed looks that we've seen Superman have in the comic stories. All through these 12 strips, Schuster does wonderful things with the two characters. Their body language is excellent, there's a wide range of emotion in their faces that matches the emotional spectrum that runs the story. Even the backgrounds and environments are well detailed without being crowded. In Jor-El's laboratory, you see equipment and such, and the bedroom from the first couple strips is fairly detailed as well. In strips 9-11, through 11, which show Krypton's destruction, the rocket launch and its trip through space are just amazing. It's really too bad that the workload and Schuster's deteriorating eyesight didn't allow him to have this kind of quality in all his work, because that would have really been something. In addition to the body language and emotion in the faces of Jor-El and Laura, Siegel's script really helps build the relationship between them. Uh, not only as someone who's familiar with Superman's stories that came before this, is it refreshing to see a woman who isn't totally crazy, but Siegel really does a wonderful job of showing the relationship between them in just a few panels and making it feel real. In the second strip, Jor-El has, you know, he's met his son and he shares a tender moment with his wife right before the quake. Laura asks, are you happy, dear? And Joel replies, more than I can ever, and he's cut off at that point. But right away, just from the expressions and the look they give one another, you can tell that these are two people who are deeply in love, and that now, with the addition of their newborn son, Kal-El, have made their family complete. That really heightens the drama in Strip 3, when Laura and Kal-El are trapped under the rubble, and Joel is frantic to get them out. Even though this is only the start of the series, and perhaps most amazing of all, of all, the fact that, you know, we as readers that have read the previous comic stories know that Laura and Kal-El are okay, or at least alive, 
three strips in, and Siegel has already made me feel enough for these characters that I actually felt Jor-El's urgency to find them in the rubble. Then in strips four through seven, we get the story of Jor-El discovering Krypton's fate, sharing it with Laura, and getting laughed off by the council. And all that makes you feel even more for these characters, and builds further on their relationship, with Laura visibly worried over her husband when he secludes himself in the laboratory. After he discovers what's happening, Laura can tell something's wrong and is very concerned, pressuring him, in a loving way, to share with her his troubles. Then there's a nice bit of dialogue, you know, where they share another moment in the night, and Jorel gets the idea to build the ship. All of these touching scenes and wonderful emotion, both in the writing by Siegel and the art by Schuster, makes the tragedy of Krypton's demise all the more heartbreaking. We've only just met these characters, yet you feel intense sadness that they're gone. And that's quite an amazing feat for such a small amount of panels. We have seen many takes on Krypton over the years. We've seen a Krypton as a very Earth-like society, and as a 50s you know, sci-fi Buck Rogers-like Krypton, and a cold, emotional, sterile world, and many combinations of those. We don't really see enough of Krypton in these panels to get a good feel of what the culture of the planet is like, but from what we do see, it doesn't look particularly alien, but there's enough differences in the architecture and the clothing that you can tell, even if you somehow missed the first panel that plainly states it, that this isn't Earth. And then there's the naming structure. I've always been a fan of the hyphenated names on Krypton, it won't become a consistent thing for all Kryptonians until later, as seen here with Ritaz, which is just one word. But I like that the hyphenation structure because it gives a feeling of an entirely different language. So many times, sci-fi writers will fall into the trap of giving characters alien names, but keeping human language naming structure of a first name and a surname. Uh, you know, take the Legion of Superheroes. The group is composed of beings from all different planets, but most of them have names that could very well be Earth names. Rock Kryn, Garth Rans, Imra Ardeen, Quirldox. Sure, they aren't common, but they just don't really feel alien. But Jor-El, whether it be Jor-L or Jor-El, as it becomes later, it just feels a lot more alien. Speaking of names... Jor-El is actually a name that originates in a previous Jerry Siegel story, and that is the Federal Men story, first published in New Adventure Comics number 12, with a cover date of January 1937. In that story, a scientist by the name of Professor Grant tells the strip star, Steve Carson, a story about what crime-fighting may be like in the year 3000. The star of Grant's little yarn is the Federal Men of 3000 A.D., Jor-El, who fights the villainous Naira Q, the Bandit Queen. So I thought that was kind of interesting that even though um, you know Siegel and Schuster had all these strips done beforehand and were trying to sell it, they started taking little bits and pieces and using in other stories. One quibble I had with this story, and it was a small quibble to begin with, and the more I think about it, I'm not sure it's a quibble at all, but if all Kryptonians... <laughs> and it's nice to be able to call them that finally but if all Kryptonians are as durable as we've seen Superman demonstrate in the comics 
And granted, we haven't seen any indication in the newspaper strip at how durable they are, but the narration both here and in that original mini-origin indicated that they were. Should there have been any worry on Jorel's part that Laura and Kal-El would be okay when the house caved in on them? Theoretically, no, but on the other hand, and this is why I'm not sure it's a quibble at all, it was more of a, a shock than anything. The building just collapsed around them, and he's frantic to find them, not sure exactly where they're at. And I think I can understand that. But that's it, really. Uh, that's really the only problem, again, if you can call it that, with this. As I said, it's just a very solid story on the parts of both Siegel and Schuster all the way through. I really like that Siegel didn't start the first strip by saying, Okay, kids, now we're going to learn about Superman's parents. Instead, we're just introduced to these characters on a distant planet called Krypton, and we have no idea who Jor-El, Laura, and Kal-El are, or how they relate to Superman. It's one of the things, I think, that really draws you into the story. Astute readers may have figured it out, you know, from the panel or two in Action Comics number one that dealt with it, but probably only if they had read that. Many may not have ever read the comics, so... For someone who, you know, may have heard of Superman but not read that first story, or any comics for that matter, this arc builds the mystery. And it's possible that they might have even thought Jor-El was to become Superman, given that they do look very similar, and he's the one showing off all these superhuman abilities. The final three panels of the last strip are pretty much lifted directly from the first page of Action Comics number one. The text is tweaked a little bit, and the art is redrawn, but they are the same images. So, basically, the final strip of the story just tells us what we were told in that first issue of the comics. As a result, we're still left with many of the same questions that that left us with, concerning, you know, where Clark was raised beyond time at an orphanage, how we got the name Clark Kent, etc. There's still no mention of where the costume or the Clark Kent identity came from, Though, if I can spoil ahead a little bit, the next story arc in the newspaper strip does deal with it. It does deal with him becoming a reporter and one of Superman's earliest exploits. And I guess that will be another quibble: is that I would have liked to have seen the part of Superman's life between where he lands on Earth and when he actually puts the costume on. You know, I'd like to see that fleshed out a little bit more. I don't begrudge them for not doing it. Twelve strips in means we're about two and a half weeks into the strip before we even get our first glimpse of Superman. And I'm sure McClure was, you know, itching to get Superman into his own strip. But still, I would have liked to have seen that expanded upon. Unfortunately, aside from a few new details that will be given in um, Superman number one, it's going to be a few years before we get a fuller origin than this, and just shy of a decade before it's done in comics. In fact, this is the fullest origin that we're going to see for Superman in sequential art until Superman number 53 in 1948, a full decade after his first appearance. And this is long after it's expanded upon in the radio show and the movie serial and more. But again, this is just a very solid story beginning to end. And, you know, other than those two very minor complaints, really nothing, to, nothing more to complain about. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, these earliest strips have been reprinted, 
Back in 1998 and 1999, Kitchen Sink Press put out three volumes of the daily strips and one volume of the Sunday strips. Together, the volumes reprint all of the strips uh, through 1941 and about the first month and a half or so of 1942. Unfortunately, Kitchen Sink went out of business soon after that, and no one has ever picked up the ball and printed any more. But these are really nice volumes with crisp, clean reproductions. Definitely worth tracking down, especially if no more reprints are ever produced. They've got incredible covers by Peter Poplaski, so if nothing else, if you find them on the cheap, pick them up just to display the covers. But really, they're worth picking up for the stories as well. This particular story that I just looked at is in the first dailies volume, which reprints all of the strips from 1939 and a handful from 1940. Additionally, though they haven't reprinted any more of the strips, DC Comics has posted the first three years worth of strips online at their site. So I will put a link to that in the show notes at greatcrypton.com. So be sure to take a look at that uh, when you have a minute until you can track down the kitchen sink volumes. Superman, a name known throughout the world, to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? The men and women who for over 75 years have given us a legend. These are their stories. As I said earlier in the episode, I'm kicking off the Spotlight segment with a two-part look at Jerry Siegel. As Superman's original writer and co-creator, it only seemed fitting that I start out with a profile of him. It also is going to allow me to get into a little bit more about the history and development of Superman, which I've kind of breezed over in past episodes, but never really talked in depth about. Jerome Siegel was born October 17, 1914, in Cleveland, Ohio. He was one of six children born to Mikhail and Sarah Siegel, who were Jewish immigrants from Lithuania. Jerry grew up as a fan of science fiction and the pulps, and very early set his sights on becoming a writer. Greatly inspired by the works of Edgar Rice Burroughs, Windsor McKay, Alex Raymond, and others, Siegel began writing his own stories. As a young teen, he submitted many stories to early science fiction magazines such as Amazing Stories and Science Wonder Stories. Though these stories were all rejected, Siegel did not give up his dreams. In 1929, at age 14, using a manual typewriter and the hectograph printing process, Siegel created a fanzine called Cosmic Stories. The fanzine printed many of his previously rejected stories under the pen name of Hugh Langley, a pen name that he would reuse on occasion in his later writing career. While the fanzine itself did not ultimately reach a large audience, it is generally recognized today as one of, if not the first, science fiction fanzines. Schuster attended Glenville High School in Cleveland, where he met and befriended Joe Schuster in 1931. The two were drawn together by a mutual love of science fiction, pulps, and comic strips. 
and they developed a strong friendship by spending endless hours reading and discussing the science fiction and pulp books of the time, as well as haunting local theaters to get a glimpse of early B-movies and A-film productions. Siegel also worked as part of the staff of The Torch, the Glenville High School newspaper. And it was within the pages of The Torch that Siegel and Schuster would have their earliest collaboration, a Tarzan parody known as Goober the Mighty. Tragedy struck Siegel's life on June 2, 1932, when his father Mikhail, and sometimes known as Mitchell, died as a result of a heart attack brought on by the robbery of the haberdashery he owned near Cleveland's east side. According to police reports, three men entered the store and walked out without paying for a suit. In the commotion, Siegel's father suffered a heart attack, causing him to collapse to the floor and die. Unfortunately, no one was ever arrested in connection with the theft. Rumors and stories persisted for years, even within members of Siegel's own family, that McHale had been shot during the robbery. But contemporary research by historians and writers such as Mark Tyler Nobleman and Brad Ricca into police and news reports from the time have found these rumors to be false. Despite this tragedy, Siegel persisted in his writing. Siegel went on to collaborate with Schuster in 1932 for the launch of another fanzine they titled Science Fiction, The Advance Guard of a Future Civilization. Siegel served as editor and Schuster as art editor, and the pair produced the fanzine using the mimeograph machine at the high school. This fanzine proved to be more successful than Siegel's previous effort, and over the course of the five issues produced, featured material from future celebrity writers Forrest J. Ackerman and Ray Bradbury, as well as Siegel, Schuster, and others. The third issue of the fanzine, carrying a January 1933 date, contained a story titled Reign of the Superman. The story was written by Siegel with illustrations by Schuster, both working under the pen name of Herbert S. Fine, a name formed from a mix of Siegel's cousin's name and his mother's maiden name. It told the story of Bill Dunn, a vagrant given telepathic powers from an experimental potion used on him by a mad scientist by the name of Professor Smalley. Dunn becomes drunk with power from his newfound abilities and seeks to rule the world. In essence, this first Superman was a villain. A few months later, inspired in part by the legends of Hercules, Samson, and Tarzan, Siegel got the idea that a Superman character might make for a better hero than a villain, and he and Schuster set about crafting a new story and character called the Superman. The two submitted the idea, which Siegel would later describe as being similar to the Slam Bradley strip they would create for Detective Comics, to Consolidated Book Publishing in Chicago who had published a 48-page black-and-white tabloid comic titled Detective Dan. They received an encouraging reply from the publisher. However, because Consolidated did not see much future in the comic book industry, they informed the pair that they were unfortunately suspending their comic book publishing endeavors and thus had to reject the strip. Distraught by the news, Schuster destroyed all of the artwork, allegedly tossing it into a fire, save for the cover which was rescued by Siegel. Legend holds that a year or so later, one summer night in 1934, Siegel lay in his bed battling a bout of insomnia. To pass the time, Siegel began think trying to think of elements for his stories. One by one, ideas flooded his mind. A dying planet, a sole survivor, fantastic abilities used to help those in need, yet hidden behind a humble disguise. All throughout the night, Siegel would wake up with more ideas, scribbling them down on paper each time. Early the next morning, Siegel woke and ran 12 blocks to the home of his good friend Joe Schuster and excitedly explained his new ideas. Inspired, Schuster sat down at the drawing board and began making sketches. 
Together, the two designed the soon-to-be world-famous look, a form-fitting costume, cape, and an S symbol emblazed on his chest. His alter ego, Clark Kent, would be a bespectacled reporter, outwardly appearing timid and awkward, but unbeknownst to everyone, in reality, Superman. Not long later, Siegel approached other artists as well, such as future Flyin' Jenny creator Russell Keaton, about collaborating with him on the strip. Ultimately, though, Siegel and Schuster went forward together. As the strip formed, added to the cast was the plucky female reporter Lois Lane, who would swoon over Superman, all the while spurning Clark Kent. To help create the visual of the strip's heroine, Siegel and Schuster answered an ad in the Cleveland Plain Dealer of an artist's model seeking work. The model who had placed the ad was Yolen Kovacs, who showed up at Schuster's house and modeled for him while Siegel explained their idea. Kovacs would later do other artistic modeling under the name Joanne Carter, and kept in touch with both Siegel and Schuster over the next decade. With their new idea coming together, Siegel wrote scripts and Schuster provided the art, ultimately assembling the equivalent of four weeks worth of daily newspaper strips, and set out to attempt to sell their new creation. Unfortunately, not everyone was excited about the idea as they were. Over the next four years, Siegel and Schuster would submit the strip to several syndicates and publishers, only to face rejection after rejection. Bell Syndicate, Esquire Features, McClure Syndicate, Super Magazines Inc. all rejected the idea. In the fall of 1935, National Allied Publications owner and founder Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson expressed interest in the strip for a book he was putting together titled New Fun. But Siegel and Schuster turned down his offer due to a belief that Wheeler Nicholson was on shaky financial ground. In early 1937, Tip Top Comics liked the strip and wanted to try it, but then that company was bought out by United Features, who summarily dismissed it, calling it an immature piece of work likely to wear off after it runs for a while. Another small newspaper liked the idea, but wanted Siegel to write the adventures as daily serial fiction. Believing Superman would have the greatest impact in a visual medium rather than prose, this proposal was turned down as well. But despite this stream of rejections and disappointments, Siegel and Schuster carried on, unflinchingly, sure they had a good thing on their hands. Part of what helped them carry on during this period is that Siegel and Schuster became comic book professionals, having secured work with Wheeler Nicholson at National, creating other features. Among these features were the musketeer swashbuckler Henri Duval, soldier of France, and the supernatural crime fighter Dr. Occult, the latter being published under the pen names of Leger and Ruths. Both of these debuted in New Fun No. 6, which was cover dated October 1935, and were Siegel and Schuster's earliest professional sales. Other features were Federal Men, from New Comics No. 2, cover dated January 1936, and Radio Squad, from More Fun Comics No. 11, cover dated July 1936, and Bart Reagan's Spy and Slam Bradley, both which first appeared in Detective Comics No. 1, from March 1937. While Henri Duval would only last for five appearances, the other strips had lengthy runs by Siegel and Schuster in their respective books. Most lasted long after Superman's debut, and the Dr. Occult and Slam Bradley characters would be revived in the Bronze Age by other creators. Meanwhile, in 1937, with Detective Comics added to his publishing roster, Wheeler Nicholson was compelled to take Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz as financial partners in order to continue. Eventually, Donenfeld and Leibowitz would take over the company entirely and sought to add another book. 
M.C. Gaines of McClure Syndicate was printing Nationals books at the time and thus became aware of their need for more strips to fill this fourth title. When Sheldon Mayer discovered the Superman strip on the slush pile at McClure, he would again try to convince Gaines to publish it, but Gaines still had no interest in the strip. However, he would send it on to Donenfeld and Vin Sullivan at DC, and the rest, as they say, is history. Sullivan had Siegel and Schuster rework the existing material into the proper format, and Superman made his historic debut as the lead feature in Action Comics No. 1. On March 1, 1938, Siegel and Schuster signed a contract selling the first Superman story, as well as the rights to the character, which was common practice at the time, to DC for $130. A lot of money at the time when, you know, a loaf of bread would cost less than a dime. With his debut in Action Comics No. 1, Superman was an immediate smash hit, selling out newsstands each and every month. Reports vary on how much Siegel and Schuster were making during this time, but upon seeing the success of Superman, the pair inquired to Donenfeld and Leibowitz about an increase in page rate and were pretty bluntly shot down. A Saturday Evening Post article in 1941 reported the pair making around $75,000 a year, so they had certainly hit the big time, but money would soon become a major rift between Siegel and Schuster and their publishers. Still, the two carried on with the strip, eventually taking on writing and art duties for the daily and Sunday newspaper strips as well. Over the next few years, Siegel also collaborated with other artists in creation of characters for some of DC's other publications. Among these were the soldier trio Red, White, and Blue with Bill Smith and Stan Ashmeyer, which debuted in All-American Comics No. 1, cover dated April 1939, as well as the patriotic duo Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy with Hal Sherman, Robot Man with Leo Nowak, and perhaps the most famous sequel creation other than Superman, The Spectre with artist Bernard Bailey, which debuted in More Fun Comics No. 52, cover dated February 1940. In 1939, Siegel married a fellow Glenville High School graduate by the name of Bella. Their union would produce a son, Michael, in 1944, as well as a second son about a year later, who unfortunately died in infancy. Bella and Jerry would sadly divorce in 1948, and, for reasons only speculated on, Relations between the two, as well as those between Jerry and his son, would remain strained for the rest of his life. Neither Bella nor Michael spoke much publicly about Jerry, and likewise, Jerry rarely mentioned his former family. Bella sadly died in 2002 and Michael in 2006. Shortly after Superman's debut in Action Comics, as well as the death of Siegel's mother, Siegel and his then-wife Bella moved to New York City. They would live there until sometime in 1941, when they would move back to Cleveland. Siegel continued as a sole writer on Superman and the newspaper strips until 1943, when he was drafted into the United States Army. In a move that showed just how much of a celebrity Siegel had become, at least in his hometown, Siegel was sworn into the Army during a special ceremony during Cleveland's Festival of Freedom on July 4, 1943. During his time overseas, Siegel worked as a reporter for the Army newspaper Stars and Stripes, as well as continuing to write the occasional Superman story to send back home. He would serve until being honorably discharged in 1946. While Siegel was away on his tour of duty, DC continued publishing Superman, ghosting out scripting duties to other writers, including Don Cameron, Bill Finger, Whitney Ellsworth, and others. 
When Siegel returned, he discovered DC had taken Superboy, a strip previously done by himself and Schuster, and published it in more fun comics without any compensation to them. Upset by this, as well as what they perceived as poor treatment in general by DC to this point, Siegel and Schuster, represented by attorney Albert Zuggy Zugsmith, took DC to court over the ownership of Superboy. Judge Addison Young ruled in their favor, but Siegel and Schuster appealed the decision because it didn't give them the one thing they really wanted, Superman. Eventually, Siegel and Schuster agreed to an out-of-court settlement for nearly $100,000 each and signed a quit claim, abandoning any claims to Superboy and Superman, even though the court had decreed that they had no property rights to the latter to begin with. The lawsuit also had the unfortunate side effect of getting Siegel and Schuster fired from all work at DC, as well as their names removed from the Superman strip. And on that unfortunately sour note is where we will leave off for now. And I will conclude this two-part look at Jerry Siegel in the next Spotlight segment, which right now is tentatively planned for episode 12. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Moody, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second... Hey there, webheads! 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed, and to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies, and what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time, so strap yourself in, and here's the hosts. This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work. Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. Okay, folks, I think that about does it for another episode. I want to thank you again for joining me. Next week, we'll be heading back over to the Spinner Rack for Action Comics number 10. Then the following week will, will be the second arc from the newspaper strip and the final part of the spotlight on Jerry Siegel. 
I hope you enjoyed the first part of that spotlight. If you did, drop me an email and let me know. Or if you have you know, any comments on the show or questions or thoughts on the stories I look at, drop me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing feedback and comments from listeners, so be sure to drop me a line. As always, you can stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes, images, links, etc. related to the issues and stories that I cover. At the site, you'll also find a link to the show's Facebook page. If you use Facebook, you can connect with the show that way to get updates whenever I post new episodes or have other show-related news. If you'd like to subscribe to the show directly, you can do do so via the RSS feed or iTunes, and links to both of those are at the site as well. If you subscribe via iTunes, please leave an iTunes review. It helps folks know that the show is worth giving a listen to. And finally, there is the Superman Podcast Network, a hub for many Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts. That can be found at fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. I'm happy to be a member of that, and I urge you to check out uh, the many other fine Superman shows that post there. Speaking of, once again, I want to remind you of my appearance on Charlie's Superman in the Bronze Age podcast. I will put a link directly to that in the show notes, but you can find Charlie's site at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. So check that out if you're in the mood for more Superman podcasting. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thanks again very much for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman. I will talk to you later. Goodbye. calculations, and much as I dread uttering these words, I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed.